I think that's a big change, first of all, as the Rothification of ketchup. It allows for this conversation of Rothification longer term. It's a step towards that. And we're not ready for it. Hi, I'm Brian Anderson with 401k Specialist, and this is the 401k Specialist Podcast. Today, we're happy to have the Carson Group's Jamie Hopkins Esquire as our guest, a nationally recognized writer and researcher. Jamie is the managing partner of Wealth Solutions at Carson Group and also a finance professor of practice at Creighton University's Business School. He's got a new book coming out this month, November 22nd to be exact. It's called Find Your Freedom, Financial Planning for a Life on Purpose, which you can find on Amazon. Of course, we're going to talk about why he wrote the book, but uh, while we've got him, we also wanted to get his take on some other hot-button issues facing the retirement market right now. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, there's a there's a lot going on today. So yeah, I think <laughs> I think we can talk about a lot of different things. All right. Well, first off, before we get to talking about your new book, um, I'd like to get your knee-jerk reaction, if you have one, on uh, the midterm election results. While yeah. we're recording this just a day or so after the election, I'm interested to hear if you think uh, what you think some of the impacts might be in terms of the retirement planning market at large. Well, uh, yeah, I think we'll get there. And, uh, I think where we're sitting today, at least when people are listening to this, hopefully they know more information than we do, <laughs> which we're not 100% sure about yet. But yeah, it looks like, right, uh, the House probably moved as it looked like it was going to, and looks like it's going to be a Republican-controlled House, lost uh, some Democratic seats there. I think probably the interesting thing for me is actually, um, and I know it's not done yet, but it actually looks like the, the Democrats might have picked up a couple governor spots, which is interesting um, when the House is flipping. I, it, that's probably not super normal, historically speaking. And then the Senate looks like, I think you were saying before it came on, might come all the way down the Herschel Walker runoff type thing in Georgia. So we could be one, you know, kind of one vote type situation uh, out there, uh, which will be really interesting just in general for policy. Uh, I think for a retirement policy, though, like I, I'm still pretty bold in the sense of uh, we'll probably get into it, the Secure Act 2.0, as we've dubbed it. Uh, I've seen a couple articles saying midterms could delay this. Uh, my expectation has been all year that this is going to get done in December. I don't see anything in this election. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, I, I don't know. We've heard that language, blue waves, red waves. Like, we didn't see that here. I mean, we're going to come down to one seat. And it, right now, I believe Dems picked up more governor seats. So, like, there wasn't a, a wave by any means. You know, we have, a, we have a country with a lot of different views in the world. I think that there's a lot of bipartisan support in the current sitting Senate for Secure Act 2.0 and some retirement legislation. I will say, though, having a, a Democratic president and at least split in policy for the House and Senate at best, um, we're not going to see like Social Security reform. It's not a thing on the table. Like, you know, we're not going to see major retirement policy reform. We're not going to see new, you know, like a new version of a 401k. That's not something that's going to be coming down, right? Like, so a lot of those big picture things we like to discuss, they're not happening. Can we have a Secure Act 2.0? Like, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of support for that, you know, pretty much unanimous in the House. And they haven't changed yet. The current group's going to vote for those. So we got to also think about that, that the current group, eh, pretty favorable in this. And I, I think that will be the case. I think we'll see that done in December. I could be wrong. I, I don't want to make my living predicting what DC is going to do. Uh, but I, I'm still pretty, you know, uh, I, I'm still pretty sure 
uh, and I interact with a lot of lobbyists and I'll actually be down in DC on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I'll be spending some time at some congressional offices on Tuesday. I'll, I'll definitely have a better feel out of it after Tuesday. Okay. I'm curious, um, what do you think uh, might be some of the most impactful pro, uh, provisions in the new legislation? Maybe something high profile like raising the RMD age 75 or perhaps something a little more under the radar like the higher catch-up limit contributions, giving them the Roth treatment or something else completely? Yeah. So what I will tell you it's not is that RMD provision. <laughs> I, I'm actually like fairly anti that provision, not from like a big picture policy. Like, look, it doesn't re- I think the answer is it doesn't really matter if we move RMDs from 72 to 75 phased in over time. Like that's the actual answer to that is, you know, I wish we had just done that in the first bill. The Senate version of Secure Act had 75 and we ended up with the House version of 72. And now we're back to talking about 75. What are we, three years later? To me, that's an issue in not getting things, you know, kind of done correctly the first time. I think that creates more confusion and issues for an industry that can't even figure out right now the 10-year rule from the Secure Act. I mean, look, we we got the IRS coming out with guidelines, right, that do not say what anybody, including the drafters of the bill, thought it was going to include, right, with the, you know, uh, distributions from year one to nine and the 10-year rule applying at the same time. And then we had to get the IRS to come out and say, hey, even though that's where we're going and that's what we think it is, we're going to waive the penalty for three years because nobody understood this. Adding a 75 that's phased into just creates more complexities. It doesn't enhance Americans' retirement security, right, by pushing out RMDs three years. It, it just, you know, the people who don't need that money at 72 and waiting three years, it doesn't change their outcome. So to me, that's, that's unnecessary complexity to add. Uh, the Roth contribution uh, catch up part to me is the biggest one. And it's the biggest one because as of right now, that effective date, I believe in the first bill is January 1 of 2023. Could we see a different effective date? Yes. The scary part about that, and a lot of your listeners, and you know this, is they're like, most plans have no idea how to do that come January. I mean, they're not preparing for that today. Small businesses, like it is, that is a mess. Um, Now, I think, you know, I think the smart thing to do is do that, but give us two years to get ready. I don't even think if that passed in the summer, we would have been ready for January 1. Like, we just don't have the systems and pipings for a lot of these plans to be able to do that. And so to me, I think that's a big change, first of all, as the Rothification of catch-up. It allows for this conversation of Rothification longer term. It's a step towards that. And we're not ready for it. And we're not going to be ready for it come January 1 if this passes on December 22nd, like Tax Cut and Job Act did or something like that, right? Um, so that's, to me, the big one um, for the those two points. One is it does open up this Rothification conversation, um, which has come up twice now, both from Republicans and Democrats. So that one's kind of indifferent on who ends up in power, right? Uh, part of Tax Cut and Job Act, the original bill had Roth of all accounts, right? Um, and that was a GOP bill, and uh, Democrats have brought it up before, too. So that, that one we could see. This is kind of a step towards that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, now let's dive into your new book. Um, it's called uh, Find Your Freedom, Financial Planning for a Life on Purpose. Tell us a little bit about the new book and kind of what spurred the idea for it. Uh, I'd say two things spurred the idea. 
One of them was I just started reaching out to people last fall and asking them what their favorite uh, financial planning book was. The answers I started get are ones that probably don't surprise you. It's like rich dad, poor dad, right? Like stuff like that. How I invest my money. And you're like, okay. And so I think I compiled a list at that point of like 10 books. And what I realized, though, was every single one of them in the 10 that were sent to me are investing books right? Um, Millionaire Next Door, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, How I Invest My Money. They're all investing books. Invest with the Fed was on there. Um, And what was interesting was like, you know, I think a lot of those books talk about planning and the importance of it, but they were all investment books. They're all different investment strategies at their core. It's savings and investing. Um, And there aren't a lot of financial planning books. Now that tells you one of two things. Either one, there's no market for it and therefore people don't write them. (laughs) Right. Or two, you, uh, nobody's put out one that's really resonated yet. And, and that's a little unfair, right? There are financial planning books that have done well. I mean, one of my best friends, Wade Fowl, has a, a good planning book, right? They, they exist, but they're not the ones that come up in conversation when you ask people their favorite book. So it, it took to my mind that I was like, look, I love planning. I'm going to write a planning book. And then the second part of it is our brand promise. And I did want to put that down somehow. And so I decided to do that in the form of a book, which is find your freedom. And it's such a beautiful question. Like when you ask people that, like, what does freedom mean to you? You get such interesting answers. So the whole first half of the book is really based off of that culture of coaching and freedom. And like, we don't talk about planning a whole lot. It's figuring out who you are, your values, writing your eulogy figuring out your aspirations, the goal setting process, like it's all that work on you. And then the second half of the book is financial planning. Because to me, if we don't figure out where we want to go, who we want to be, set our core values, and have those like that, those conversations about what's our relationship with money, and what do we want to, you know, legacy we want to leave, like all the planning is in a silo and kind of useless. Like, I mean, to, to not be like, hold back too much, like, you know, I don't care what the plan is if it doesn't align with my values, right? Like, who cares? Like, if it's super efficient, um, it, it has to go back to whatever I want to accomplish. So the whole second half is what what I would say is the planning promise, what real financial planning should be. And the first half is really about that finding your freedom. Okay. Um, the book also addresses the importance of emotional data and financial decisions. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, we're, you know, the first pitch of the first inning on the, you know, emotional and behavioral finance world. And Dr. Daniel Crosby, uh, who I was messaging with actually on the way here uh, today, uh, we talk about this a lot, which is we're at the awareness stage. So like we're kind of aware that behavior and emotions are important but we don't really know a whole lot more. I mean, we have very limited understanding about it. But one of the things we do know is that this there's this whole aspect of, um, I, I think that the first reaction to behavioral finance was let's remove as advisors emotions from the investing and planning decision. Like that was the start. Like we're just going to remove that and take it away. And that is completely wrong. Like it was a totally wrong reaction to all of this. The reality is our brain craves emotional data to make decisions. And so there's actually research with people who've had traumatic brain injuries and have actually lost some of their emotions. And what actually happens is they can't make good decisions. They become paralyzed because their brain doesn't have that emotional data. And so we don't want emotions to run rampant and like us to totally overreact and make irrational and inconsistent decisions. 
decisions. But we do need to recognize how we feel and be okay that that influences some of our decisions. So it's kind of like guardrails. We don't want to like get too upset that we, you know, I'm up on the 23rd floor and I jump out the building because I'm upset today. Like, I don't want that. And that's why they put bolts and they don't let the windows open, right? Like we're putting guardrails in place. Like that's a super extreme example. But the same thing, like, I don't want anybody to look at those midterm election results and be like, I got to take all my money out of the market. Well, look, every single midterm election we've had since World War II, we had intra-year pullbacks of, I think, of like average 18%. And then the next year up over that low point day, we averaged over 20% up in the market over, over that next year. Like, look, we've had we've had volatility in every midterm election year since you and I have been alive. Like, that is so normal. Like, it, it's, per, you know, how much isn't predictable, but uncertainty creates that. I don't want people pulling their money out, but can you be concerned and readdress your plan? Absolutely. And I think part of that, the difference between what you see that we got to remove emotions and TV stuff that's like, don't be emotional, is you actually have to give permission to people to express those emotions so that you can then actually address them. And I think a lot of the financial conversations, we do not give people that space and permission to talk about how they're really feeling. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Jamie. But uh, before we wrap this up, I'm curious about uh, if there's anything else that might be on your radar right now, Any, any other issues that have your attention these days? I've got another one. Yeah, it's just this was on my mind from earlier today and this past week or so. Um, you know, we're in a very interesting investing time period. And I think this will impact, you know, the the retirement plan market. I think it impacting individuals is what do we do with cash? And I know that's a very like broad question, but I mean, like, how are we investing our cash? Are we sitting it? in the bank? Are we buying CDs? Are we buying money markets, you know, mutual funds? There's a lot of, you know, ultra short duration, uh, you know, ETFs out there now that like are way cheaper than some of the mutual fund money markets that are providing better rates and really don't have, you know, really don't have a whole lot of risk to them, right? They're, you know, I mean, under one year holding. So even if interest rates move, not a lot happens. And, Uh, that's kind of like a technology development. And if people can't see me, I'm doing it in air quotes, but like ETFs are technology development in the investment world. But we still have a lot of people using what I would say is antiquated investing techniques and technology. And that's one to me right now is people are maybe a little bit more fearful of the market, trying to hold their cash for a period of time, but holding their cash in a very inefficient way, meaning you might be giving up 100 basis points by using that you know money market fund versus a short duration ETF every year. Well, that's a lot of return wrapped out over, you know, if you're holding a year's worth of cash all the time or a cash equivalent. And I don't think that that's front and center enough in a lot of conversations. Uh, in, you know, the 401k world, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of those money market um, mutual funds as default investment options. And probably some of them need to be swapped out in the next couple of years because there is better tech and better solutions. So that's one that's directly on my mind, mostly because so many people are, you know, thinking about holding some stuff in cash or cash equivalents right now. Can you do that in a more efficient manner than you have in the past? Right. Okay. Well, this has been great. Uh, Jamie Hopkins from the Carson Group. That's just what we needed. Thanks for joining us today on the 401k Specialist Podcast. And remember, you can find his new book on Amazon starting on November 22nd. 